This podcast contains language which some people might find offensive. Your mum might be alright with it, your dad will definitely be fine with it, but granny might not like it. That said, your kids might find it educational and learn some new words to make them look cool at school. Also, there are many views and opinions that you might not share, and some fabricated situations that obviously didn't happen. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Phil and this is Julian. Now then. We are two middle-aged northerners, a.k.a. the Rock Geeks, taking a deep dive into albums that we love, exploring who made them and how, where and when they were made. Uh, last time out we took a look at Iron Maiden's eponymous debut album and thanks very much if you took time out of your day to listen to that, it's much appreciated and we hope that you enjoyed what you heard. Um, full disclosure, we are recording this prior to getting all our podcasting ducks in a row, but... If you haven't already listened to that episode, you can probably do so via our website or whichever streaming service you subscribe to. On this episode, uh, we're going to be having an in-depth chat about what will possibly be one of the most polarising albums we're likely to cover in this run of shows, Weezer's second album, Pinkerton. Hang on a minute, haven't we done that before? (laughs) Well, yes, again, full disclosure, um, this is the second time that we've had a go at this um it is a surprisingly tricky album to navigate when you're talking about it isn't it it is i think at first we thought that it'd be a really fast one you know yeah but um it turns out the more you dig the more there is to to find out and the longer it takes to talk about it so i think that last one they did was almost was it nearly four hours long something like that yes this one won't be no, fingers crossed it won't be. Um, I think I think we did get stuck in, you know, some of the um, thornier um, issues uh, regarding the lyrics and the lyrical content. Um, mm. I think they're quite tricky waters to navigate. We'll hopefully um, fare better uh, this time around. And also, I did get lost in Rivers Cuomo's beard. I remember some discussion of razor blades and... Um the fact that he'd had a shave and that had so much context to what we were talking about. So we'll try and avoid that rabbit hole this time. Yeah, I don't think people need to know um, whether he's using a Gillette Blue 2 or not. I still would like to know, though. Well, maybe you can look that up on your own time. Yep. Okay, so um, the artist uh, is Weezer, obviously. Uh, The band members, Rivers Cuomo, who played guitars, keys... Uh, or keyboards, sorry, glockenspiel and vocals. Uh, Brian Bell uh, played guitar and sang backing vocals. Matt Sharp um, played bass guitar and sang backing vocals. And Patrick Wilson uh, hit the drums and a few cymbals. The producer of this album, of, of Pinkerton, is, uh, is Weezer. Um, oddly, managed to convince a record company that it was a good idea for them to self-produce on their second album, Mm. um, which is quite a feat, really. Um, Not many bands can pull that off. Um, Engineers on this uh, this album, uh, there's Joe Bracey, who engineered six tracks, uh, the first six tracks on the album, I believe. Uh, Dave Fridman, who engineered the last four tracks. And then there's a, a... 
a bunch of engineers who um, did radio remixes and and such. Um, so there's Adam Casper, uh, Cliff Norrell, um, Jack Joseph Puig, who uh, mixed the whole album, uh, Rob Jacobs and Jim Rondinelli. Um, we'll get into their uh, contributions a bit later on. Year of recording and release. Um, the album was recorded uh, between September 1995 and June 1996 um, at a variety of studios, two of which are probably um, among the most iconic studios in the world, uh, Electric Lady in New York City and uh, Sound City Studios uh, in Van Nuys. I have the Sound California. City t-shirt on today. Well, how apt. I know. How apt. I didn't even do it on purpose. Some, yeah. some kind of planetary alignment's happening. Yeah. Well, the other studios, I've got my Fort Apache socks on. Have you? Yeah. Good. Hollywood uh, Sound underpants. Yeah, my Hollywood Sound recorders underpants. Uh, my Rumbo recorders vest. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we'll be getting into... Your underpants. <laughs> uh, maybe not. Um, no, thank you. Yeah, so the album was mixed at uh, Ocean Way Recording in Hollywood by uh, Jack Joseph Puig, as mentioned. It was mastered by George Marino at Sterling Sound in New York City and was released into the world uh, on September the 24th, 1996. Anyway, so as we've just mentioned, um, Pinkerton was predominantly recorded at two of the most iconic recording studios in the world, Electric Lady and Sound City. Both still open? Uh, yeah, uh, ooh, Electric Lady, yes. Sound City, not so sure. Don't uh, think okay. so. Uh, but, yeah. It'd be a shame if it's not, but... Yeah, yeah. I, well, I think it's in private hands now. Right, OK. Um, so, from what I can gather. But we'll we'll, we'll get into that um, in a little bit when I, after I've uh, spoken about Electric Lady. Um, from Wikipedia, um, Electric Lady is a studio where the uh, Blue Album was recorded with uh, Rick Okasek. Electric Lady Studios was commissioned in 1968 by Jimi Hendrix and designed by architect John Storick and the world-renowned studio engineer and producer Eddie Kramer, whose uh, credits include The Beatles, Rolling Stones, Traffic, Small Faces and Jimi Hendrix, to name but a few. Good CV. Yeah, it's a decent CV, that. Yeah, I'd be happy with that. The studio was completed in 1970 and was the first ever artist-owned recording studio, although Warner Brothers did have to rescue the project with a six-figure cash injection just to get it across the line. Hendrix would get to make use of his studio for a mere ten weeks, uh, during which time construction work was still going on, before leaving to fulfil his commitment to perform at the Isle of Wight Festival uh, in 1970. Within a month of the studio's official opening, Hendrix had unfortunately passed away. In the years since Hendrix's passing, Electric Lady Studios has hosted most of music's big hitters, such as Led Zeppelin, Stevie Wonder, David Bowie uh, and the Rolling Stones. Um, a little later on, it played host to uh, Chic, Hall & Oates and The Clash. Uh, and more recently, uh, Florence and the Machine uh, recorded uh, their Dance Fever album there. Mm -hmm. And finally... Oh, yes. Julian's favourite... Favourite Christmas hit of all time, Christmas Wrapping by The Waitresses, was recorded there. Very good. Which is a bit surprising to me, because it's a very English-sounding song, isn't it? A song of that yeah. weight and gravitas needs um, a studio that can carry it. Absolutely. And, and that's what what's, what's happened here. Yeah, I think any song that references cranberry sauce exactly. in the lyrics needs... Top, a top-notch studio yeah. to record in. Hope you're not joking. No, <laughs> I'm really not. I really do like that song as well. Um, 
It's been quite a challenge to find anything out about the equipment that was installed at Electric Lady Studios uh, circa 1996 when uh, Weezer went in to record Pinkerton. Um, and although we can't definitively know for sure due to a lack of available information, we can at the very least make an educated guess as to what kind of mixing desk would have been used to record Pinkerton on. So, very briefly... This time. This, this time. Um, it wasn't the original Datamix Corporation console uh, that Jimi Hendrix had installed in 1970. And we know this because uh, this was acquired by the Museum of Pop Culture in Seattle in 1991. Um, and as far as I'm aware, it is still on display there. Um, just a, a slight aside, have you looked at the Museum of Pop Culture website? Nope. It is incredible. Is it good? It's amazing. It's ama- you should see the things that they have on display. All right. Um, uh, can, on- can you remember years ago when they opened the British Museum of Pop Culture? In Sheffield? Yeah, in the kettle yes. drum things. Yeah. Oh, it was terrible. <laughs> Awful. What, there was what? nothing in it. <laughs> they might have like a coat worn by Jarvis Cocker or something. There was nothing in it. Um, and then it closed down. And we did a gig in one of the... Things that it, t- it turned into a barfly, one of the kettle right. drum things, and we played in one of them. So the Museum of Pop Culture in Seattle have got tons of like really interesting stuff from you know the grunge era, you know guitars and amps and outfits and just tons of really really cool stuff. So it's worth having a look at their website. Electric Lady Studios uh, was sold at some point in the mid, uh, early to mid-1970s to two guys named Hale and Alan Selby, who subsequently installed a Neve 8068 console in place of the Datamix console. Uh, this Neve console was custom-made for Electric Lady Studios, but was sold in 1983, shortly after Billy Idol recorded his uh, Rebel Yell album on it. There's a joke there somewhere, isn't there? There is somewhere. Somewhere. But, but I tell you what, right? Oh, you're going to defend Billy Idol I now. am. I am going to defend Billy Idol. That, you know, that that album's a good album. Those, those early 80s hits, White Wedding, Rebel Yell. Take me back home, yeah. Great, <laughs> great pop songs. Anyway, so this, um, this Neve 8068 uh, Electric Lady Studios um, was replaced by another larger Neve console that had flying faders. Um, now, if you don't know what flying faders are... Um, they're basically um, motorised faders which can be programmed via a computer or some other means um, to move around during the mixing of a song so that you don't have to have, um, you know, five people yep. pushing faders up and down. Unfortunately, we don't have a model number um, for this uh, particular mixing desk and crucially, we don't know for how long it was installed um, it could have still been there in 1996. We just we just don't know. We've got no proof of that. So the mixing console currently installed in Studio 8 Electric Lady Studios is indeed a larger Neve 8078 console with Martin Sound Flying Faders 2 installed, um, which sounds very much like it would fit the bill. However, we know that it wasn't this console uh, because uh, that particular console was acquired from Clinton Recorders around about 2011. Um if I had to make an educated guess as to what mixing desk was in um, Electric Lady Studios at the time, um, I would guess that it was possibly the Neve console that uh, replaced the uh, 8068. Um, a, because um, that's what was installed prior to 1996, and B, because that was what was installed afterwards in 2011. So I'm, I kind of think that for continuity and consistency's sake, 
if they've had a Neve console with flying faders installed since 1983 and it's working for them, you wouldn't replace it in 2011, nearly 30 years later, with the same mixing desk if it, if it wasn't yep. you know, what you wanted uh, I get you. in there. Um, so, so that's what I would have to guess. Um, so moving on to Sound City Studios, yep. um, <clears throat> this is the studio where the last six tracks on the album were recorded. The studio was created by uh, Joe Gottfried and Tom Skeeter, who wanted to start a record company and get into artist management. Um, after a rough start, Skeeter and Gottfried purchased the state-of-the-art recording console for £75,175 from the English electronics engineer Rupert Neve. Um, it's quite a specific price, that, isn't it? It is. It's that little that one seven five thing on the end. Yeah, it is. It is. I, I, I mean, I don't know how much that is in today's money, but I imagine it's a lot, I like a hell that. of a lot. Um, particularly because um, the, the desk in question is one of four in the world. Uh, it's a 28 input, 16 bus, 24 monitor, 8028 with 1084 EQs and no automation. Um, and the first song that was recorded on the console was performed by Buckingham Nicks, uh, which led to an invitation to join Fleetwood Mac. That won't go well, will it? Mm, no, I don't <laughs> think so, no. Uh, they won't amount to much. Um, the studio opened in 1969 in the Van Noyes area of Los Angeles and over the years has played host to just about any super famous band or artist that you care to mention, including uh, Johnny Cash, Tom Petty, Neil Young, Fleetwood Mac, uh, Elton John, Bob Dylan, Nirvana, Metallica, Red Hot Chili Peppers and Guns N' Roses, oh, and also Charles Manson. See, I'm, I'm continually baffled by Charles Manson and his recording career. I don't, I don't know enough about him, but it always seems weird that he would have a recording career. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know if he had a career so much as... Um, a session. A couple of sessions. Right, all right. maybe I should look into that a bit yeah. more. Uh, the, from the little that I know, it, it kind of feels like he was a bit of a pest, a bit of a bothersome pest. <laughs> To, uh, that's p- to, <laughs> no, no, I don't oh, mean that Charles Manson. What a pesty you are, eh? <laughs> I don't mean I don't mean in that way. I mean like in like the music industry. Um, I think he sort of hustled quite forcefully to right. Okay, you know, get songs recorded and whatnot. Um, so you're not linking pest with the murdering thing? No, that, that's right. that's a step above being a pest. Really. Mm. So well, several steps above being a pest, I would say. Mm. Um, I think so. Yeah. Um, a big draw for many of the artists was the ambient qualities of the live room, which were particularly good for recording drums. Uh, Toto drummer Jeff Beccaro stated that to get a good drum sound at Sound City, all you had to do was set the drums up. Um, the interior of the main studio has allegedly never been painted over, nor its linoleum tiles changed, due to fears that any such change would directly affect the legendary sound quality of the room. The studio was closed to the public in 2011 uh, and much of the equipment sold off, including the Neve Electronics 8028 console from Studio A, which was purchased by Dave Grohl, former Nirvana drummer and current frontman of the Foo Fighters, um, who installed it in his Studio 606 in Northridge, California. Um, The mixing console became the subject of the 2013 Sound City documentary. Which is well worth a watch. It is. It's very, very good. It is very good. I liked it a lot. Um, the other studios mentioned earlier, just a, a, a whistle-stop tour around them before we get on to some uh, historical uh, context. The other studios are no slouches when it comes to uh, a stellar client list. 
Fort Apache has a client list that reads like a who's who of 90s indie rock bands. Amongst other bands that have recorded there, we have Radiohead, Dinosaur Jr., Superchunk, The Rentals, uh, which is Matt Sharp's yep. side project, Pixies, Lemonheads, uh, Juliana Hartfield and Throwing Muses, to name but a few. Um, Rumbo Recorders has played host to Guns N' Roses, who recorded Appetite for Destruction there. Uh, Megadeth recorded Rust in Peace. Oh, what a classic. It is a, a, a thrash metal masterpiece, uh, is Rust in Peace. Uh, Stone Temple Pilots recorded Core there. Fleetwood Mac, again, um, they get around LA a bit, don't they? <laughs> um, they recorded Tango in the Night there. And then there's, you know, several others, including uh, Spinal Tap, who did uh, the Break Like the Wind album. Was that the early 90s one? It was, yes. Yeah. The Majesty of Rock. That's the Mystery of Roll. Yeah, that one, yeah. Very good. Yeah. Um, Hollywood Sound Recorders, which opened in 1965, has hosted legends such as Diana Ross, Bobby Gentry, uh, Glenn Campbell, Prince, Earth, Wind and & Fire and Slayer. <laughs> yeah. Which are two separate bands. <laughs> yeah. It's not a collab. That would be a good gig, wouldn't it? It would be a great good gig. festival afternoon. Yeah. Yep. Diana Ross first, then Bobby Gentry, Glenn Campbell, Prince, Earth, Wind & Fire, followed by Slayer. <laughs> yeah, well, All the opposite way around. I, well, the I, thing is, I can't imagine that any of those acts would want to go on after Slayer, right. so they'd have to headline for me, I think. Um, Ocean Way Studios, where Pinkton was mixed by Jack Joseph Puig, um, is, according to their website, uh, the world's most awarded studio complex and has a webpage that features a wall of album covers for albums recorded and mixed there, which include Michael Jackson, Bad, mm-hmm. Michael Bolton. Go on, Phil. Even worse. Well done. And uh, last but not least, Barry Manilow. Bloody marvellous. I won't hear a bad word said, said against uh, Barry. Is that one from your childhood as well? Was there a Barry in your household? There was, yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. There was... Um, James the- Last... James, oh god, yeah, didn't like. I didn't like James last very much. Barry Manilow, I quite liked. We had an album where he's sort of um, his big bounce is right in front of the LA skyline at, at sunset. Mm. I can't remember what it's called though. Um, but yeah, we had that one. That was played quite a bit. Um, oddly, Pinkerton doesn't feature um, on the, on this web page, right? Um, but Disney's The Little Mermaid does. Right. Okay. So you can only imagine that Little Mermaid shifted. More units. More units than Pinkerton did. Um, as a side note, the Focusrite studio console at Ocean Way, um, one of ten ever made, was designed by none other than uh, Rupert Neve. Right. So there you go. Is that the last of Rupert Neve now, do you think, from this episode? M- maybe, for, maybe for this episode, yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, Pinkerton is quite unusual um, in that it was recorded and mixed a total of six studios. Um, most albums are recorded in one studio, possibly relocating to a second studio for the mixing process. Um, but very rarely does the recording process spread itself out in this way. As we shall discuss shortly, um, this will make tracing the recording history of Pinkton quite a challenge. Um, but for now, let's have a quick chat about what was going on elsewhere in the world uh, upon Pinkerton's release. Right, 
I like this. So 1990, what year was it released? Six. Yeah, how old were you? Um, I would have I would have been a couple of months short of 21. Yeah, I was 21 when it was released. 10th of January, Terry Vegetables announced that it'll resign as manager of the England national football team. Uh, that's a, that is a shame, actually, because Terry Vegetables was probably the most successful England manager of the last... Apart from Gareth Southgate. Gareth Southgate's yeah. done all right, But he? Terry Vegetables did a really good job, I thought. He did. On the 13th of February, really, really sad news. Take that, announced they were splitting up. Oh, God. It wasn't there um, a hotline set up? Yep. Yeah. A couple of people actually killed themselves. Really? Yeah, because of the news. Oh, my God. Blimey. But the thing is, though... How must have they felt when they reformed? What the dead ones? <laughs> yeah, they probably didn't know much about it. Mm. Well, you know, you know, if you believe in an afterlife, I know. They, they might have been looking down and going, Bastards. "Shit, shit, shit. Yeah, it's a really good album that as well." Yeah. Right, February, former Millie Vanilli band member Rob yeah. Pilatus is hospitalised when a man hits him over the head <laughs> with a baseball bat in Hollywood, okay. while Pilatus is attempting to steal the man's car. Oh, right, so right, hard times after the. Lip syncing, no yeah. singing, Grammy Award thingy. That that is a, a big fall from grace. It certainly is. Baseball bat though. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Next. I mean, I, I guess they're more popular in in America than they are over <laughs> yeah. here. Rounders bat. We're yeah, metal rounders bats. We'd have here. Uh, the Prince of Wales, Diana, Queen of Hearts, agrees yeah. to give the Prince of Wales, now Charles III, a divorce. He was coronated yesterday, as we do this. Um, podcast today and as we speak there are lots of street parties and lots of stuff that feels really into going on <laughs> up and down the country yeah <laughs> uh, <coughs> i shall keep my uh, opinions on the moniker to myself yeah this episode he does have a union jack hat on at the moment, <laughs> right more than three years after separating lisa marie presley filed for divorce from michael jackson that was always going to end yeah you know, end. <laughs> There's nothing to yeah. go for that. You, you, you can't really envisage um, Michael Jackson having a healthy adult relationship in any form whatsoever, really, can you? Nope. Which is sad in a way, yeah. you know, but there you go. Dolly the sheep was the first mammal to have been successfully cloned from an adult cell, and that was born at the Brooklyn Institute. Uh, the Spice Girls' debut single, Wannabe, is released. Bill Clinton was re-elected for a second uh, term. Was Is this... Um, pre, I know what you're going to say. Pre cigar, cigar. Uh, I don't know actually. I can't. I can't imagine you'd get re-elected after being impeached. I wouldn't have thought so, but let's see if Trump does. Mm-hmm. Well, um, Rupert Murdoch entered the 24-hour news business and launched the Fox News Channel. While we're on about uh, Donald Trump, oh, amazing. I know. Do you know what there wasn't in 1996? Um... There's a lots of things, obviously. Yeah. yeah Google, go Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest, Snapchat. No iPhones, camera phones, iPods, Kindles, Skype, Gmail, Wikipedia. And no iTunes. How did we cope? I don't know. How, how did we get by on a daily basis without any of those things? I know. On February 22nd, the domain myspace.com came online as well. I don't think it became ultra popular for another you know, for quite some years to come after that. But that's when yeah. it first appeared. We were doing our searches using Alta Vista, Yahoo, Excite and Lycos. Wow. Hmm? 
I don't think, I, I'll be honest, in 1996, I don't think I was using the internet. No, I don't think I was. At either. all. I don't think I had any engagement in it uh, whatsoever. It, I, I think it was sort of Must be literally yeah, computers, yeah. 19, 1999 into 2000, I think was yeah. when I... Yeah, I think a lot of people did have computers at that point at home, though, up. did they? Yeah. Next yeah. one. Go on. October. I like this one as well. Yeah. David Brooks is fined £45 in Hampstead Magistrates Court for disrupting the quiet enjoyment of the public by playing his bagpipes on Hampstead Heath. <laughs> Described as, in, inverse, in speech marks, a pain in the neck by his first <laughs> spokesperson for the College of Pipers in Glasgow. <laughs> Brooks vowed to buy a bicycle in order to continue playing in the open air, so they'll just have to catch me, he said. Uh, yeah. That's pretty amazing. I like that one. The kind of some of the highest grossing films Go of on. that year. Independence Day, have you seen it? Uh, yes, I have, yeah. yeah Any yeah. good? Uh, it's all right. Mission no. Impossible, I think I've seen that. I'm, I'm not a massive Tom Cruise fan, so... No, not, Jerry Maguire, so that's Tom Cruise again. Yeah. The Rock. Sean Connery. Who else is in And that? Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage, The Nutty Professor. Yeah. The Birdcage yeah. and A Time to Kill. Birdcage, that's a Robin Williams I film, it is. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I remember um, I was flying home from uh, Toronto and um, that was the film that they were showing. This was at a time on aeroplanes where you couldn't choose your film. Right. And so you, you just had, had to watch, watch it. <laughs> what was on. And Birdcage was on and uh, I fell asleep. Yeah. It, it, it didn't hold me. High praise indeed. Right, so yeah. indie rock albums yeah. released in this year. Yeah. Beck released Odalay. Yeah, good. yeah, it's a good one. Evil Empire by Rage Against the Machine. Yeah. Down on the Upside by Soundgarden. Yeah. Was that a Joe Barassi album? I'm not sure. Down on the Upside. Unplugged, Alice in Chains. Dust by The Screaming Trees. Great album. From the Muddy Banks of the Wish Car by Nirvana. Yeah. Never heard of them. Um, Beautiful Freak by Eels. Great 19th. album, that. High Low. High Nada, forward slash low. Nada Surf. Yes. Who oddly had, there was a song on that called Popular, which I think was the lead single, which bore quite a strong it resemblance. Re- the chorus did sound a lot like a Weezer song. To, um, un, is it Undone the Sweater song or yep. something like that? Terrible. It had like a really, had like a spoken word verse, I think. Yeah. Which yeah. is a bit like Undone the Sweater song. And then the chorus was very, yeah, yeah. I think I know where they got it from. Other ones, which I imagine you've probably got these. Yeah, go on. Uh, All Eyes on Me by Tupac. Yeah, it's my favourite. Uh, Come Find Yourself by the Fun Loving Criminals. I, I have actually heard that. Yeah. The sound from the, the in sound from The Way Out by the Beastie Boys. Uh, yeah, not not a massive Beastie Boys uh, aficionado, mm. I must say. Reasonable Doubt. I don't know. Jay-Z. Oh, yeah. Oh, Jay-Z. Jay-Z, yeah, he's one of my <laughs> favourites too. Man. I don't know. Nina Cherry. All right. Fast couple. The score. Fuji's. Well done. Even I know that. That's how big that album was. Even I know it. Yeah. So, yeah, 1996 was also the midst of Britpop in the UK. Yeah. So, although yeah. not many of those albums on there, um, the big hitting albums were Britpop albums. These are more like global big sellers. If you yeah. were in England or if you were in the UK in 1996, you would have been surrounded by... Britpop bands, Oasis, Blur, and lots of other um, knockoffs. Marvellous. Mm. What a great time to be alive. It was a good time to be in a band, because there were loads yeah. of live music venues. Um, it felt like a really good... It felt like guitar music was at the forefront of what music was in the UK, whereas now it's obviously not. 
but it, it was a good time to be in a band. There were plenty of venues, I'll give it that. Tons of them, yeah. Um, you know, um, plenty of places to go and play if you could, uh, if you could get a gig, because I seem to remember around about that time, gigs became, like, at decent venues, mm. became quite difficult to get. Mm. Um, I might be talking out my arse. Probably. <laughs> So, um, let's move on to the uh, recording schedule of Pinkerton, which, as I mentioned earlier, is a little bit sketchy and a bit difficult to sort of pin down. Um, My initial interpretation from what was uh, written on Wikipedia is as follows. In August and September of 95, Tide of Sex, Get You, No Other One and Why Bother uh, were tracked in a two-week session at Electric Lady Studios in New York City. The band then reconvened in January 96, um... Completed Tide of Sex, Get You, No Other One and Why Bother, and recorded El Scorcho and Pink Triangle at Sound City Studios in Van Nuys with uh, Joe Bracey. Um, March and April of 96, uh, skipping forward to then, uh, they returned with Dave Fridman um, and recorded uh, The Good Life Across the Sea and Falling For You at uh, Sound City Studios again. Uh, and then Butterfly was the final song recorded for the album in these sessions at Sound City again. Um, But as we will see later, some of the details regarding the whens and the wares of Pinkerton's sessions may be subject to change. Um, Joe Bracey, as mentioned earlier, engineered six of the four tracks on Pinkerton. And by the time he was working on Pinkerton, his engineering credits already included Caius, The Melvins and L7. And he later went on to work with uh, Fu Manchu, Monster Magnet, Tool, Wolfmother and Soundgarden. Some quite hefty sounding bands there, yeah, isn't there? Yeah, he's definitely into drop tunings and bands that uh, employ them. You know, Fu Manchu are just the classic stoner rock band mm. and Soundgarden are just probably the best band to come out of Seattle ever. <sighs> In my humble opinion. <sighs> I have to disagree there, but... Well, yeah. Well, another episode. Yeah, we'll discuss that on another episode. Um, in 2016, uh, Joe Bracey gave an interview to uh, vinylmeplease.com, from which I shall read um, an excerpt um, for you now. Are you going to um, do an accent? I might do an accent, yeah. Is he American? Uh, it, well, it might be American. It might come out different. It might Who knows? be intended as being American. Anybody's guess this, but isn't it, it? But what comes out could be, could be okay. anything. But it'll be exciting to find out. So, um, the article starts with, uh, Pinkerton was or wasn't exactly what it was supposed to be, depending on who you ask and when you ask them. Uh, that's one of the key parts of the album shtick. This was an unsettling album to make, release and listen to. Just ask Joe Bracey, one of the main studio engineers, who worked on the album when it was songs from the Black Hole and Pinkerton, and being recorded at both Electric Lady Studios in New York, Fort Apache in Boston, and later at Sound City Studios in LA. The whole process was crazy, dude, from beginning to end. <laughs> That's exactly how he talks. That's uncanny. I don't know how you, how you managed to, uh, to pull that off. That's amazing. The whole process was crazy, dude, beginning to end. It's late afternoon on Monday, and Joey's taking a break from a circus of various projects he's working on in his studio in LA. We went into Electric Lady to record this album, and I was thinking we were making a logical follow-up to the Blue Album. I had no idea what I was in for. The Blue Album had been so polished and precise, but this album took on a life of its own. 
Despite the, ad- the added difficulty, it was working, well, for the most part. Recording the album was a bit of a roller coaster ride from a scheduling perspective, with Rivers enrolled at Harvard and most of the rest of the band working on solo projects. But that wasn't the only thing making things tense. This was also the first album Rivers had written on his own and it wasn't going over that well. That combined with a burgeoning popularity of said side projects and the farm-to-table recording methods made the studio a pretty tense spot. But the sound they were looking for was definitely coming together. Farm-to-table? I've never heard that phrase before. Yeah, is that um, like a, a... I think I know what it means. Variation of hand-to-mouth. Yeah, I've not really heard it before, but yeah. Yeah. So, um, in the next uh, paragraph, Joe Bracey discusses um, how the album was recorded and, and you know, the, the method by which they captured the... Uh, um, the the music. We discussed not using headphones and going for a more live feel than the previous record. So I used the headphone mixer to drive some floor wedges slash monitors and that allowed the band to hear one another better. Other than that, it was four guys in a room playing together through a bunch of takes of songs. Then I'd sit and edit the various takes together into the song. The sound in the room was massive because it was all bleed. Two half stacks and a bass rig all set on stun in the same room with the drums. The wedges bleeding into the room didn't help either. The only way I could make it work was to add more dirt and distortion to glue it all together, so the sound of the room mics became a big feature. This was also a challenge uh, when it was decided to change a note. It was easy enough to punch the new note in, but since it was recorded live, that meant that the old wrong note would still be in the room sounds as well. Sampling the room and pitch shifting it and flying it back to tape was the only solution. As far as recording of vocals go, it was three guys standing in a triangle singing together. If one guy messed up, then I had to punch all three in because the offending note would be in the other two mics. Quite a challenge, but ultimately a cool way to work. And so different than today, when all a singer does is mouth words that can be fixed later. These guys had to try and get it right first time. Mm. I mean, this is um, probably on the cusp of um, Pro Tools becoming... Mm, um, 96, yeah. You know, becoming a, 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 a more widely used recording format than tape. Um, I can't imagine Weezer being keen on jumping on technology like that, though, can you? And being early early adopters. No. Maybe no. nowadays, but not then. Yeah, yeah. I th- to be honest, um, I think the way that... It's, you know, the way that they wanted to record the, this album... Um, the method that Joe Bracey used was perfect for it. Hmm? You know, they wanted something live and roomy and exciting, you know, something that, that sort of has got, like, you know, character, hmm. personality. Um, and I think the way to do that is, 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 you know, how it was done in the 50s and 60s, you know, um, just proper old school, um, you know, just get a great engineer who knows about mic placement um, and who can also has the chops to sample a room ambience and fly it back to tape. You know, I mean, that is some next level stuff really right there. Um, Testament to Joe Brace's uh, talents and abilities. Um, The article goes on to say, it was worth the effort though, as we now know. And all of that work led to one of the most important albums of the 90s, which I wouldn't disagree with. Um, that's me saying I wouldn't disagree with it, not the, not the article. I mean, he's not mm. going to disagree with his own article, is he? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Joe Bresi closes by saying, it was, honor, it was an honour to be on the project and it was one of the most challenging and rewarding things I've ever been a part of. I mean, it's crazy, man. Think about it. We were working on the birth of emo rock and we had no fucking idea. That's so wild to me. So there you go. You've got Pinkerton to thank for emo rock. <laughs> yeah. So quite an enlightening uh, little article, that. Um, it spoils some things, doesn't it? You know, when you know too much. I know, like, our whole thing is knowing too much about yeah. stuff. But just, like, editing bits of songs together and stuff like that, you, I like to think they just went in and just kind of, you know, ran straight through them or did multiple takes and then chose the best one, not, like, weaving different bits and bobs of songs together. Yeah. Because get- it doesn't sound like that. So, like, he did a good job because you would never know, would you, from listening to it? No, that's, no, that's what happened. No. I mean, you know, sometimes peeking behind the curtain I know. is not a good thing, is it? Um, in the first paragraph of, of, of that article, it states that Joe Brace's involvement with Weezer predates Pinkerton uh, when he worked on the band's ultimately shelved space-themed rock opera, Songs from the Black Hole. Now, this is the first time we're kind of mentioning this. I'm so glad um, that that didn't continue, aren't you? Yeah. I know they're kind of probably... Over time, maybe it's become uh, more of a thing than maybe it was, but just, yeah, a space-themed rock opera. Yeah. Jesus I, Christ. I think um, the, the the problem with, with rock operas and concept albums and stuff like that is that generally the concept runs out of steam and gets diluted and compromised in an effort to sort of make things work links mm. become more and more tenuous as it goes along mm. um, I think it ended up being some kind of concept album anyway didn't it one man wrote everything all the words yeah. and it's about a specific time in his life so that's the concept isn't it so a handful of tracks from the songs from the Black Hole Sessions uh, did see the light of day on Pinkerton most notably the first four tracks Tired of Sex Get You No Other One and Why Bother um, so this Raised the question for me, um, when did the songs from the Black Hole Sessions become the Pinkerton Sessions? Um, well, according to this article, Joe Baresi worked on these songs at Electric Lady Studios as early as August 1995, while the band was still working under the songs from the Black Hole title. Uh, but Weezerpedia.com seems to contradict this by stating that the Electric Lady Sessions of August 95 were in fact the first of the Pinkerton Sessions. Um, so in an attempt to resolve this apparent contradiction, I think we have to refer to the album liner notes, uh, which clearly state that the album was recorded between September 95 and June 96, um, which would potentially make the Fort Apache sessions of September 9th to the 15th, uh, 1995, the first of the Pinkerton sessions. Or would it? Further investigation reveals that the Electric Lady Studio sessions from 95 ran from August 27th to September the 6th, uh, which would give the band uh, four whole days from the 27th to the 31st of August to collectively change creative direction regarding the music, lyrics and the album title so that the liner notes uh, that we have now remain accurate. Um, So based on this incredible level of insight... Uh, in order to make everything fit nicely and neatly, I would guess that sometime shortly after Thursday the 31st of August 1995 is the point from which the songs from the Black Hole uh, got ditched and Pinkerton sprang into existence. <laughs>
So um, to recap what we've uh, talked about so far, um, basic tracks for Tide of Sex, Get You, No Other One and Why Bother were originally recorded at Electric Lady Studios in New York City, August into September 95. And according to Weezerpedia, the master tapes were then taken up to Fort Apache Studios in Boston and work continued on the guitars and vocals. In the end, only a few of these versions ended up on Pinkerton. Most were later re-recorded in L.A., so it seems that the Fort Apache sessions in Boston were just overdub sessions for guitars and vocals. Right. So that's where we're at so far. Um, it was in January of 1996 that Weezer and Joe Bracey picked up where they left off at Fort Apache the previous September at Sound City Studios in Van Nuys, California. According to Weezerpedia, during this two-week session, Tide of Sex gets you a no other one from the Electric Lady at Fort Apache sessions were worked on again to bring them to semi-completion. Um, in the Pinkerton Deluxe liner notes, fifth Weezer member Carl Cock writes, um, In January, the band convened at Sound City Studios in Van Nuys and worked on the new songs Pink Triangle and El Scorcho, and they revamped most of the songs started in New York. He goes on to say, Tellingly, while Superfriend, She's Had a Girl and Dude Were Finally Landing, all Black Hole songs, were attempted, these recordings were then shelved, in the case of Superfriend, completely erased. Um, this was a sign, perhaps, that the Black Hole energy was now fading, as this new kind of energy was growing. No one knew where things were going, but everyone loved the power of the new songs. So, maybe um, the ghost of songs from the Black Hole lingered... Hmm into um, January of 1996 um, and you know maybe that's the point at which songs from the Black Hole got left behind and Pinkerton yeah. kind of realise you're onto something new and you've got a sound that's worth pursuing yeah because yeah. it doesn't sound like space rock does it no Pinkerton. no no not at all <laughs> not at all um, so let's recap a second time just so we can get our bearings on this because it is quite convoluted um Basic tracks for Tide of Sex, Get You and No Other One and Why Bother were originally recorded at Electric Lady Studios in New York City in August and September of 95, then sent to Fort Apache, Boston, Massachusetts in mid-September 95 for vocal and guitar overdubs. In January of 96, the band relocated to Sound City in Van Nuys, California uh, and revamped Tide of Sex, Get You and No Other One, Why Bother being considered complete at this stage and also recorded two new songs, Pink Triangle and El Scorcho. Now, according to Dave Fridman in an interview given to the Future Heart YouTube channel, um, I got to be good friends with the engineer who was working with them before me, Joe Baresi, and he said that they kept coming in and putting down this Flaming Lips record and saying, make it sound like that, make it sound like that. And finally he said, why don't you give that guy a call and get off my back? <coughs> Which, fair play to Joe Bracey. I know, I know. <laughs> Yeah, fuck this. Get that guy to do it. Um, so they did. And in uh, during May of 96, um, the band began recording the remaining four songs that make up Pinkerton at Sound City with Fridman at the controls. Those songs being The Good Life, Across the Sea, which was inspired by a fan letter from Japan uh, that Rivers Cuomo received in February of 96. Um, Falling For You and Butterfly, which was recorded at 6am uh, on the final night of the session. Um, the sessions would run like so, according to Dave Fridman. Um, they'd record a song nine times and it would be completely different each time. 
and then they'd have me edit them together. They'd sit down with a list and show me all these edit points they wanted to make, and I'd edit the tape together into one complete take, and then they'd decide whether they liked that or not, and if not, they'd go and do nine more takes and keep going until they were done. I wonder why nine? Yeah, it's um, <clears throat> it's a it's it's a strange number. Um, I mean, it could be that um, maybe that's he just says nine times as like uh, multiple times, you know, like as yeah. a way of exaggerating the fact that more than once. Yeah, or maybe you know, there's only half an hour of tape maybe. on the on the spool. It's a very bizarre um, way of recording, though, isn't it? It kind of isn't. It isn't. It's kind of. It's. I mean, it's old school, isn't it? You know, it's how. It's exactly how. Just um, the stitching it together bit and putting yeah. it like, making loads of different versions of the same song from different takes. Why don't you just decide which version of a song you want and play one take through of that? Well, you know, maybe if you, you know, if you are, if you, if you're not sort of being so rigid in your arrangements and everything's quite fluid, you might chance upon something that sounds yeah. great in the middle eight of one version, but not so great, you know, something that that. I mean, there's all kinds of happy accidents that mm. occur, isn't there? You know, and it might not. It might be that you can't replicate what you've just done mm. um, in a, in a, in a different take. Um, but all in all, that sounds pretty consistent with the process that they went through with Joe Barresi. So, you know, I, I mean, maybe that's the reason why, even though there are two different engineers um, mm. on this album, why it still sounds like the same body of work. You know? Is that what so, mastering does as well? We'll come it, back to mastering well, again. It could be, yeah. It evens it, things out. Yeah, it, it could be. It creates a consistency. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it could be. Um, again, um, from Carl Cox's Pinkerton liner notes, um, Recording was supposed to be wrapped up by late June, but there was more work to do, so several more studios were employed to continue the overdubs and final parts, um, as well as the B-side. So this is hence the credits for Hollywood sound recorders yeah. and rumbo recorders on the liner notes. Um, while mixing began with Jack Joseph Puig at Ocean Way, Rivers grabbed studio time in bits and pieces all over Hollywood, frantically adding finishing touches right up to the last second. In the end, Rivers and I barely made our flight to Europe on August 13th, having been in the studio wrapping up the Across the Sea intro that morning. So, one last recap uh, in this... Uh, <laughs> a recap of the recaps. A recap of the recaps, yeah. Hopefully this will clear things up um, if, if things weren't clear uh, before. Um, so, again, basic tracks for Tired of Sex get you No Other and Why Bother... Originally recorded at Electric Lady Studios, New York City, in August into September '95, uh, these tracks were then sent up to Fort Apache in mid-September '95 for vocal and guitar overdubs. In January '96, uh, the band reconvened um, at uh, Sound City in Van Nuys, California, and revamped "Tired of Sex" get you another one. Why bother? Was considered complete at this point and also recorded new songs Pink Triangle and El Scorcho. Jumping forward to May of 96, the band reconvened again at Sound City, this time with Dave Fridman at the controls, and recorded The Good Life, Falling For You, Across the Sea and Butterfly, uh, with finishing touches to the album and B-sides being made right up until as late as August 1996. Pinkerton was then mastered by George Marino at Sterling Sound, New York City, before being released on September the 24th, 1996. Wow. 
Yeah. Um, this is what happens when your lead singer goes to college. It is, isn't it? Because um, we haven't really talked about that yet, have we? Why, we recorded it in such, why they recorded it in such a, a strange way. Because didn't he enrol at Harvard? He did, yeah, yeah. Was it to do music? I think so, yeah, yeah. Or did he switch? I think he might have switched I, to something. I, I think I think he was doing composition. And then, so they they would record. Before was it before then at Christmas and then maybe, so on um, spring break. Yeah, spring break. Yeah, that was the May session. Easter. Yeah, yeah. So so basically, they, they they're working around Rivers Cuomo's academic schedule. Mm. Um, I imagine that went down well when he first told them all. Yeah, yeah. Lads, I've got an idea. Yeah. Bear yeah. with me on this one. I know we've just had mm. a really successful debut album. Yep. But. <laughs> yeah. I know we're all itching um, to get back into the studio and stuff. But as we will get into a bit later on, you know, I think probably Pinkerton would be a vastly different album had Rivers mm. Cuomo not experienced that isolation yeah. that he did at Harvard, you know. Oh, you're um, right. It's just a very odd way of. Uh, recording yeah yeah absolutely and it makes our job that bit more um, difficult trying to piece it all together Um, just for the completists um, other credits on the album Adam Casper um, mixed all the b-sides for El Scorcho and The Good Life Mm. Cliff Norrell worked at Ocean Way Recording and the discography on his website states that uh, he recorded Weezer for Pinkerton Um, now, I'm going to assume that this was overdubbed some finishing touches at Ocean Way um, because we all, we've already established that Joe Barese and Dave Fridman uh, engineered the whole album. Um, Rob Jacobs remixed The Good Life for radio. And according to Genius.com, Jim Rondinelli mixed Across the Sea, um, but the official Weasley YouTube channel uh, lists Jack Joseph Puig as the mix engineer. Um, although this info is auto-generated by YouTube, so who knows, maybe Jim Rondinelli did mix, or maybe there was a single version of Across the Sea that was, again, mm. mixed for radio. So that um, is the uh, Pinkerton recording process. Um, Simple. Yeah, yeah. Um, anything but, really, but um, <laughs> that's it in a nutshell, like uh, <laughs> like Mike Myers. <laughs> Cool, shall we um, have a chat about the uh, the tracks? Yep. Well... Imagine... <laughs> go on. Imagine in 1996, um, you know, you, you, you've been listening to um, the radio-friendly uh, hits of the Blue Album. Yep. Um, and you can't wait for the second album to come out. Mm. And it comes out and you put it on and it's just a massive and wall of feedback. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I mean, it couldn't be more different, could it? Well, no, and obviously the sound of it as well throughout, not just that first part of the first song, just all the way through it, it and it doesn't let up. Yeah, it's raw as... I mean, it's it's refined, but like mm. Joe Barisi said, you've got to add more dirt and distortion to glue it together, mm. and that's what you're hearing, really, on the album. And, I mean, that, that that wall of guitar feedback that opens the, the, the album actually goes on into the second verse mm. or like just before the second verse yeah. so the whole the, the, the sort of definitely making more of a statement about um, you know the production value of this album and and um, you know how they want it to come across mm. um, they're making a big statement there it's not my name is Jonas is it it's not, it's not that no, kind of no. Op- opener no it's not um, 
And straight into the lyrics, which are raising eyebrows yeah. as well. Yeah. But, um, well, I think, I think we can add a bit of context to this, mm. um, to, especially to the song title, because I, I do believe that um, this was the first song written for the second album in as early as 93, I think, right, okay. I want to say. Um, by which point, I think, um, maybe it was 94, um, by which point I think Weezer had been on tour with the Blue Album right. and had experienced all the trappings of being a successful touring band, um, you know, which would inspire, potentially, in somebody who's probably a bit more sensitive than... Um, say Brett Michaels or uh, <laughs> yeah. Dave, Dave Coverdale. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, could inspire a song title like "Tired of Sex." Oh, I don't like it as a song title, though. I just I, I don't like the lyrical matter of this song, but um, I like I like lots of things about this song. The lyrics are probably bottom of the list. Yeah, um, well, I can kind of get the context of them and why why they were written and so on, but I just I don't. Yeah, I like the drum sound. Obviously, that's yeah. like the, the bass and the drums at the beginning. And like, it sounds massive instantly, doesn't it? It does. It does. And that that slightly overdriven bass sound. Yeah. Um, just, I think I think I've you know you, you've got that sort of big drum room ambience going on, um, but it's the bass guitar that slight overdrive on the bass guitar yeah. that gives it that really gritty, yeah. nasty sort of sound you know oh, it sounds enormous yeah it does um, it other does. bits that i like i like i like the git that synthy guitar line that comes in there yeah i like the first bit of the guitar solo yeah that's good the first yeah, bit yeah, like yeah, that yeah, yeah i just yeah. like the general feel of the song but i just wish the words were something else sorry do you know well don't apologize to me i'm i'm, I'm not here to judge you um, are a bit though. <laughs> <laughs> no i i mean i, I can you know what I mean, don't you? I, I, I do know what you mean. Some of it's a bit like... It's a bit cringe. Yeah, that's what I mean. Um, and, it, and it is like a bit of a rock... It's the rock musician version of First World Problems. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, it, Rivers Cuomo has said that, you know, this album was inspired by uh, Madame Butterfly, uh, an opera by Puccini, um, in which one of the characters um, is an American sailor called B.F. Pinkerton. Mm. Which is where the um, title of the album comes uh, comes from, and um, he has said when when Pinkerton was under the working title songs from the Black Hole, um, the whole concept of the album was that you know he was in he was being on a tour bus is like being sent off into space, mm. and his whole thing was that um, you know B.F. Pink Pinkerton was an asshole American sailor. Um, similar to a touring rock star, which is, yeah. I think, what he felt he had become was an asshole American sailor. I mean, you know, everybody would respond differently to suddenly becoming the object of desire of, of, of you know, members of the audience. Mm. Um, and the more determined members of the audience might, um, you know, um, make themselves known to you on a nightly basis in different cities. And freely uh, available. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, and obviously that has caused some conflict <laughs> for, uh, for for old rivers here. Um, 
you know, uh, Monday night I'm making Jen, Tuesday night I'm making Lynn. And he moves on to Catherine on Wednesday. It's like Craig David, isn't it? It is. Yeah, children. Quite old-fashioned names, though. Some yeah. Some of them, aren't they? Yeah. Denise, Cherise, Louise. I know. Yeah. Um, great opener, though. Oh, it's a brilliant opener. Great opener. Love it. And it sets the tone. That. Um, oh, I didn't mention the, the drum fill. Is it into the second verse? You yeah. It's kind of normally follow like a verse, chorus, verse, because like, it's building, isn't it? Yeah. Dan thinks, Dan, who's a drummer in our band, he thinks uh, it was a mistake that they kept in. Well, it it does have that chucking a drum kit down the stairs does, kind yeah. of vibe. It and certainly it, does. And it might further support the drum overdub theory. Maybe, yeah. I just think, yeah, it's just, you know, it's just a brilliant fill. It is. It is. It's a work of genius, even if he didn't mean to do it. If anybody's drum style suits this kind of drum sound, it's Patrick Wilson's, isn't it? You know, just because of his kind of, the kind of steady 4-4, four, four, four to the floor kind of yeah. beats that he does. But that I, lends itself nicely to this drum sound, I think. Yeah, but I do think that this is the sound of a drummer that doesn't have Rick Okasek in his headphones going, play it straight, play mm. it straight, play yeah, it straight. Maybe. You know, because it, it, he's... he's feel on, on throughout this album is a whole lot looser mm. um, and it's not as regimented I don't think as the Blue Album mm. um, so yeah shall we move on to uh, to the next one yes Get You is another um, quite early song if you go back through setlist.fm as well it first appears around July August time in 94 right so it's right. Um, yeah so it's one of the older songs which goes against what I thought of the song at first because it sounds like a really really quick um something they wrote recorded very very quickly but yeah. it's the absolute opposite to that so what do i know yeah, yeah basically what does anyone know exactly yes yeah but yeah it did they played it when we saw them um they only did 10 songs wow I, I th- which is perfect for me i mean like nah you gotta no nah, i mean what's that that's an hour isn't it yeah just enough like, no. there's the jamie yeah they opened with that no one else. The world has turned and left me here. Get you in the garage. In the garage. Say it ain't so. Undone. The sweater song. My name is Jonas. Buddy Holly and Surf Wax America. Yeah. He wasn't in a good way though, were he at time? No, I seem to remember that he um, spent quite a bit of time after the set had finished, um, sat on the drum riser. Mm. Um, probably in quite a lot of pain because I think this was around the time that he was having leg surgery. and Yeah, his whatnot. leg lengthened. Yeah. I remember uh, a lot of concerned um, Yorkshire teenagers. On you're the- right, Rivers. Yeah, <laughs> you're right, mate. How's what's it going? Up, what's up, Rivers? Yeah, you're right. You look sad. Anyway, it's just a brilliant second song for an album. Um, yeah, good chorus. It doesn't let up at all throughout the entire song, does it? There's no like no. nice little quiet middle bit or anything like that. It just keeps going with the same level of intensity all the way. And uh, yeah. It's grand. There's some really good backing vocals in it as well. Yeah. I think the the album, the track listing, is the order in which I think mm, the I songs th- were written and recorded uh, and, and subsequently recorded. So, yeah, it would make absolute sense that this was uh, like a, an early 94 yeah, track. given what you said about um, the previous song. Yeah. I can't yeah. even say the title of it, Phil. Well, well, you don't have to. Nobody's making you. Um, but it's tired of sex, just for you. <laughs> oh, <laughs> sex. Um, 
<clears throat> I think um, again um, thematically, I think we're sort of this song is is sort of the foothills of um, what Rivers Cuomo um, gets into in greater depth in later songs, which is kind of obsessing over. Mm. Uh, women and relationships with women and and also dealing with his own um, what he would perceive as failings as a human being like you know that line um, you think that I'm some kind of freak um, in the uh, I think it's the third verse kind of that, that sort of sort of repeats itself in, in songs like The Good Life where he talks about being a pig and a dog yep. and um, you know, having generally having a sort of low opinion of himself and not being worthy of um, the relationship that he's aspiring to um, with the object of his desire. Again, you know, th- th- there's kind of also themes of, you know, that line, I can't believe what you've done to me, um, what I did to them, you've done to me. Um, it's kind of like a, 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 an issue of, of, of being faithful and trustworthy and... You know, so there's obviously sort of, you know, that sort of aspect of trusting someone enough to be in a relationship that they're not just going to do the dirty on you. Um, I think there's, there's that sort of right raising its its head in this in this op- opening couple of tracks. Yep. But yeah, like you say, um, I, I really like the uh, the slide guitar intro originally. Oh, it's great. Originally, uh, that as we know, that was on played on uh, keyboards. Yeah. Maybe the, that was the Matt Sharp influence. Yeah, maybe. He's a big yeah. synth fan, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. But, um, but I think it was the right move. Oh, th- yeah. Th- well, th- it's know. easy to say it now because we know this version so well, don't yeah. we? But it does sound brilliant. It does. It's great. So next up, we get no other one. Yep. What do you reckon? Well, um, in contrast to um, to Get You, um, this one does have a, a quiet, loud, quiet, loud format, mm. doesn't it? So it's got that sort of, you know, the verses um, have a kind of, I want to say tender mm. sort of feel to them. Um, although lyrically, they're not... They might sound, they might be delivered in a tender way, but lyrically it's not a particularly tender no. song with um, Rivers Cuomo sort of continuing his to vent his uh, issues surrounding trust. It reminds um, me of like uh, <laughs> El Scorcho in the verse, in that it sounds like it's about to fall apart all yeah. the way through the verse, yeah, yeah, only to be kind of like put back together again in the chorus. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those kind of ones, isn't it? It is, it is. Um, Good screech at the beginning as well. Yeah, it's a good who. I do like that. Who? Like yeah. Who? Um, it is one of the weaker songs, though, in my view. I do not. I, I, I think this album gets better as it goes on. Um, yeah. You know, I, like it's kind of, there's a few at the beginning that I'm not. Yeah. We've talked about with other albums where, like, sometimes I feel like the the, the, the track listing for my tastes is like it's, it's not quite right. But um, this is a good example of it, Early Doors. I'm not, yeah, it's, it's a good song. I mean, you know, when I listen to it, I think it's great, but comparatively with some of the other ones, less. 
less uh, exciting. Oh, I don't know. I I, I struggle to <clears throat> separate them in that in that way because I think I think all the songs are great. Like trying to for me trying to pick a weak song um, or the weakest song from Pinkerton is like taking the top ten best tennis players in the world. Yeah, and trying to pick out a weak. Right, tennis. Player, I know what you mean. Or, or, yeah, you know, like they're, they're all at the top of the game for me. Um, right. Okay. And, I get and, you. And I really, I, th- I really do like this song. Um, I love the guitar arrangement, the melodies that the guitars um, play, and the way that they intertwine. Um, I love the vocal harmonies in the final chorus, and the way that you know, obviously now that we know that we're they were all recorded together. Yeah, like little gang vocals. Uh, yeah, just not. You know, it just sounds. Sounds great and and very impressive that they were able to do that in you know in one take together. Um, there's little bits in uh, like little layers like the little backing vocals in the outro where mm. the the backing vocals are um, you know almost singing the guitar melody sort yeah. of underneath everything makes it sound a little bit like one of those um, recorders that had keys that you press to mm. to make the noise you know a treble. Uh, yeah, a treble. I think so. Yeah, mm. yeah. Good, good, uh, good memory. It's got a few yeah. bits in it that sound like not that the mistakes, but it's really rough. You know, like the transitions yeah. from verse to chorus, from chorus back to verse. Yeah, um, it's very, very rough. It's not neat at all, is it? No, and 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 I think that suits it. Oh, to yeah. be honest, it, I think it absolutely suits. You know, the the um, the the subject of the song, and you know, this sort of very. Um, uh, insecure, you know, it's written, written from the point of view of somebody who's quite insecure and possibly on the verge of falling apart at any minute. You know, I think it kind of musically it sort of reflects that uh, fragile um, state of mind quite well. I think well. a lot of the criticism of the album over time has been the lyrics, hasn't it? And he said himself that some of the lyrics on the album are what we might think are mean or sexist. Yeah, by so, today's standards. And he says yeah. there's some pretty nasty stuff on there. And he says, you may be more willing to forgive the lyrics if you see them as passing low points in a larger story. Which, you know, is giving it a bit of context, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah. I think think if you you learn from, you know, if, if, if you make a comment or write some lyrics or write something that's by today's standards inappropriate, um, if you show that you have learned from that, developed as a human being and moved on Mm. and taken... You know, and not made those same comments again, and perhaps um, you know maybe sort of uh, said I was wrong for saying those things in song. Um, then you know maybe maybe you can sort of um, forgive the song its failings uh, lyrically speaking. Um, you know um, that opening line, "My girl's a liar." Maybe she was. She might have been. Yeah, she might have been. So why? What's wrong yeah. with that? Well, I kind of, I kind of think that like knowing what we know about the rest of the album and putting it into con, you know, context is everything. And putting it into context, there's a lot of distrust um, in this album. Yeah. Um, from the from the writer's point of view, um, which you know has been obviously informed by um, his experiences on tour yeah. um, with the band touring the Blue Album. But yeah, I mean. I don't know. I kind of feel like, you know, my girl's a liar, but I'll stand beside her. She's all I've got and I don't want to be alone. That sort of 
speaks for itself, really. It really does speak I don't, for itself. We don't need to analyze <laughs> that, really. I don't want to be alone. Yeah. So anyone will do. Um, it's got that kind of vibe to it, you know. So why bother? I um, quite a quite a simple arrangement. This song, nothing, um, you know, uh, too complicated. It, for me, this is a candidate for inclusion on the Blue Album. Um, yep. I think it sort of sounds the most like, you know, something like Surf Wax America or... Mm. Um, it's got that know. chord progression that's just been in court. You know the one, the Ed Sheeran, Marvin Gaye? All right, thing? yeah, yeah. It's got that in the verse. Right. So right. I don't normally say this, but I'm with Ed Sheeran on this one. <laughs> it is a standard chord progression though, isn't it? It is, yeah, it is. It is. Um, yeah. yeah, so it's but it's brilliant. The verse is amazing. Um yeah, I think um, um, you know lyrically. Um, uh, I think it's 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 kind of like it feels like it's been written by a teenage boy um, <laughs> because you've got a reference to masturbation in the first verse. Um, it's just sexual attraction, not something real. So I'd rather keep whacking, which I'm assuming is. It's a bit cringy, that, isn't it? When you read it out like that. Yeah, I, I, I'm assuming it's a, a, a masturbation reference, um, and then. Um, you know the 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 line in the second verse. Maybe we could even get together. Maybe you could break my heart next summer, mm. which again just sounds like a, 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 a you know the musings of a teenage boy. It does, yeah. Um, it's you know maybe there's some arrested development going on. Possibly, yeah. Going on here. Um, one thing that I will say, a musical highlight for this uh, song is the bass line, um, because I think it, it shifts re- around, doesn't it? Yeah, it really lifts. Um, the chord progression and, mm. and puts emphasis on, um, you know, different octaves and different intervals throughout the the, the, the track, which just makes it, um, you know, more harmonically rich and yeah, interesting yeah. to listen to. It's um, pretty good. I think about this as well is, I think it'll come up later on when we talk about some of the other lyrics, but some of the words he uses have like a proper weight to them, don't they? You know, like the crack it up and... Get, yeah. Let me out a beer. There's just something about his choice of words and how they sit within a beat. Yeah, um, yeah. have a certain weight to them. There's a few of those in this. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, crack it up and let me out of here. Just wanting to get out of his own head. Mm. Um, you know, so that he doesn't have to potentially deal with the the constant whacking. And, <laughs> I know. And and it's exhausting. <laughs> yeah. Um, also. Um, with the bass line, I, I love the way that the bass line sort of is it, it, very late in the guitar solo decides that he's going to join in with the guitar solo. Well, the guitar solo is a bit, a bit weird, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, it just sounds chaotic, but in yeah. a really good way. You know, it almost sounds like um, they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> you can just imagine it, the engineer going, you happy with that take? <laughs> yep, yeah, okay, all right. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, um, you know, the, the, the BVs on the outro as well, that little arrangement that they do with the backing vocals. Yeah, it's nice, isn't it? it? It's almost got a sort of... Um, it makes me think of, like, you know, a, a stage musical yeah. kind of vocal arrangement, you yeah, know, with all... a call and answer thing, which I, 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 I like a lot. Um, so, um, should, we t- should we talk about which is one which is possibly um, going to be... Yeah, it's not aged well, this next one. No. <laughs> In an album where none of the li- lyrics have aged particularly well, this one is, you know, 
It's up there as probably the worst, but I like it. It's, uh, listen, you know, we, we've talked about this um, previously, and this is this is out of uh, sequence, but it is possible to hold two things yeah. concurrently. Double one, think. Yeah, one in each hand. One thing is that these lyrics are dodgy as hell, and the other thing is that this song. song is amazing. Yep. <laughs> Do you know what? I think that's the first time I've ever seen the lyrics. Obviously, you've got the lyrics there in front of you. Ever seen them written down? Because they're not in the album, are they? No, no. And I didn't realise that some of them what they are, what they are. <laughs> you know, because sometimes you kind of, I don't know, you might sing lyrics or lines pass you by, but yeah, there's some there's some quite disturbing stuff in there. Yeah, absolutely, there is. Um, like serial killer territory in it, some of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean that line. Um, don't say it because I'm going to start heaving again. <laughs> um, Go on, I'm going to. I'm going to have to say it. That line. Um, they don't make stationery like this where I'm from. So fragile, so refined. So I sniff and I lick your envelope and fall to little pieces every time. God. That is quite serial killery. It is isn't a bit, it? isn't it? You know what I mean, like that whole sort of um, thing. The, the the thing is, is it? It, it kind of feels like. Like uh, we're getting deep into Rivers Cuomo's psyche here, but it feels like this is a cry for forgiveness, or at least a cry for help. I mean, he's actually, you know, saying in the line, "Why are you so far away from me? I need help," and your way yeah. across the sea, yeah. you know. And then um, I could never touch you. I think it could be wrong. So it's kind of like admitting that these thoughts and feelings that he's having about this person who's written him this fan letter in mm. good faith it might be yeah. added um it, it kind of it kind of like he knows that it's not right that there's something at play here that isn't um perhaps morally acceptable yeah. but it's a good song so well you have to yeah i mean it is i mean i mean the the thing that i you know the piano on this, on the intro, as we discussed yeah. earlier, was the last thing to be recorded before they went on tour in right. in Europe. Um, and I was just sort of thinking about that in, in the piano intro, the way that the piano and then this really raw-sounding distorted guitar yeah. sort of blend together is just... Um, could almost be like a metaphor, a, 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 an, aud an audio sonic metaphor for the conflict between, mm. um, you know, the, what's going on in the lyrics where, um, you know, it's, it's got this really sweet um, fan mail that is then shitting all over by being a bit creepy. I don't think it's shitting. I'm sure he did lots of other things all over it. Do you not think, though, that the, well, they didn't have a producer, did they? I keep thinking, was nobody there to go, Rivers, are you sure about these lyrics? <laughs> You're 100% well, sure. Well, you know, I mean, you know, when we were saying earlier about the, his songs not going over that well, maybe that was a bone of contention, you know, maybe oh. the... Um, I mean, for me, like, the, the weirdest lyric in this whole song is, at ten I shaved my head and tried to be a monk. I thought the older women would like me if I did. You see, my, I'm a good little boy. It's all your fault, Mama. It's all your fault. Like We're into, like, um, <laughs> what's he called? Off Psycho. <laughs> What's the character oh, called? Um, Norman Bates. That's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are getting into some deep water <laughs> on this one. Like, yeah. 
is he looking for approval? Uh, you know, is it is it an admission of some kind of of guilt or, um, you know, what 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 is going on in his in his head with this? You know, um, but like if if you if you took away the music and just presented the lyrics, you would think that is fucking. Yeah, weird. How, how are you going to make that into something? Yeah. that's a great song. But but what what he does is. It, it, at, the, at the very end of the chorus, it puts in the line, "I've got your, uh, I've got your letter. You've got my song," which is a just an amazing lyrical payoff. Um, it's, it sort of reminds me of like, you know something from the sixties, you know, a classic mm, sort yeah. of sort of pop song. Herman's Hermits, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and also, it manages to put in um, the most complex. Sequence of chords in the solo. Oh yeah. Um, just and and sort of makes this song really quite, in terms of its arrangement, really quite sophisticated. Just in that move alone, um, you know. I, I mean, it sounds quite jazzy. To it me. is jazzy. It goes down in. It's like um, it's not a common jazz chord sequence, but it has its roots in going down in i think it's minor thirds or something like that yeah it just makes it it's in uh, there's a couple of jazz you know, it's in giant steps there's a bit of that in it um yeah i think it's in have you met miss jones as well the middle bit of that right that, that kind of movement as well where things are shifting around and it just sounds a bit odd i don't think it is giant steps actually but it's that kind of where you're moving down things in yeah in yeah. a certain way, which is used in jazz a bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, very impressive to sort of, um, you know, that sort of that that sequence alone sort of transforms this song from like a, um, a why bother type, you know, very simple mm. indie rock arrangement to something a bit more sophisticated. Um, and that's partly why, partly how he gets away with it, I think. Um, yep. You know. Um, Lyrically dodgy as hell, musically amazing. Yep. Which one wins? Um, well, I, altogether. Do you know? What, give it a tick. Well, it's I mean, fine. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a long time ago. Yeah, I mean, but but in, you know, in context with the rest of the album, yeah. it it sort of I think you have to take, you know, we're sort of taking snapshots of different parts of different songs and sort of commenting on them, but. Um, it's not just that particular line in a song or, you know, that verse or chorus or whatever. It's the work as a whole that I think you've got yeah. to look at with this. And in isolation, yes, certain things do appear to be inappropriate. Um, We're letting it go then in the end. We're going to say it's fine. <laughs> you're, you're all right, I, it's well, fine. I, I, I think... Um, I think also you have to sort of look at it like it's just an, it's an album it's an it's a, a an indie rock guitar mm. album from the mid nineties it's not like I don't think he stands by not, a lot of it himself no, anyway does no. he I was going to say it's it's not anything like massively important what well it's not is it really you know when you, you know when when you sort of you know mm. look at the wider picture um, you know. How old were we? Do you reckon we did this? Not that it's an excuse, but lots of people in the twenties yeah, have conversations, yeah. which maybe you go back and you think, oh, 
you know, maybe that wasn't 100% yeah, oh, uh, absolutely. How, how appropriate you male know, and female. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you go through life and you grow and you develop mm. and you change your point of view mm. on, yeah. on things. Um, and, 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 yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I am fully prepared to forgive Rivers um, his uh, previous discretions um, and, 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 you know, comments and, and lyrics um, because I, I don't believe he's that person anymore. You know, he hasn't written anything remotely offensive since this album. <laughs> Apart from... <laughs> because everything that came after that was a direct, it was a massive effort to be anything but offensive. But ended up know. being musically offensive, a lot of it. Well, yes, yes, this is it, this is it. This Bev- is the paradox of... It is. Uh, Rivers Cuomo's uh, career. Bev- Beverly Hills. Oh, oh dear so. me. Anyway. Let's move on. The Good Life, not I- to be confused with... The British TV show. No. No. With Penelope Keith. Felicity Kendall. <laughs> it was Richard Briers in it. Richard Briers, Paul Eddington. Oh, well done for Paul Eddington. That's thanks. good knowledge, is that? Yeah, thanks. I kind of remember um, the TV show, The Good Life, more for the fact that Rick Mayle in yeah, The Young Ones the had young a ones did it, yeah. thing for Felicity Kendall, didn't he? Did, yeah. I like this super simplistic intro part for the guitar. Yes. Which I think was yeah. born out of his inability to be able to play the guitar properly at that point. I don't mean that in a really horrible way. Right. I mean, I think he was actually in physical pain. Right. And open chords and things down there were a bit more comfortable to play. Right, right, okay. Which would make sense. It is quite tricky, that intro, because it's a barred G, isn't it, into it an is. open E. So you have to do a, a little... Yeah. Keep the same shape and move down, yeah. maybe. I don't know. Yeah. But it's out, and it, it, it sounds out of tune to me <laughs> it to you um i've not noticed i've not no I've, you will now yeah i will i will now you're, wel- you're welcome yeah <laughs> i'll be like that b strings a bit <laughs> yeah a bit flat yeah um I, i've written my first thing that i, I noted down here was uh, the word swings like fuck yeah which you know up until the first chorus it really does swing you know it's got that movement to it which is just um you know Testament to Patrick Wilson's amazing. There's uh, some really good drum bits in this song. Oh, isn't there? <laughs> do you know? What? I I think that this is possibly his best performance on the whole album. Yeah, some um, good stuff. That drum fill coming out of the first chorus is just a work Maybe of minim- yeah, minimalistic genius. Six um, over eight or something like that. Yeah, and it's quite it's it's quite a sparse arrangement four. comparatively. Just for the most part, it's. Mm. Um, you know, it feels like just a live performance until you get to the breakdown section when the glockenspiel yeah. and a bit of piano comes in. It was a single, wasn't it? It was. I think it was remixed um, for the uh, for the single. And I think somebody else played bass on it. Yes. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, because I think at the time, Matt Sharp was on tour with the Rentals mm. um, and not available. That's, that's what happens, isn't it? When yeah. you're, you know, you're away, um, yeah. people do other stuff. But um, yeah, it's video. It was a single. It's got Chloe from Twenty Four in it. The video she's in it as a pizza delivery driver. Right. You never watched right. Twenty Four, did you? Judge no. by that face. No. Yeah. Um, yes, it's not a particularly great video. Um, Probably done on a budget at short notice. Yeah, the, the rapidly waning interest from the record company well, because it's not very yeah, sold very much. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, um, I, 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 the thing I like again the, the continuing this sort of theme of having it all together until a certain point in the song in this particular case the solo section where chaos pieces. reigns yeah and it's good it just, at doing that I'm really good at it, it I mean it, you have to be at the top of your game to be able to make 
a song sound like it's going to fall apart at mm. the same time as making it tight and sound amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you know, props for that. Um, lyrically, um, I think this is uh, Rivers at his most in pain and down on himself. Yeah. Um, that he's uh, possibly ever been in his life. Um, you know, as we mentioned earlier, we've got the lines, um, I'm a pig, I'm a dog. Um, you know, preceding that, I ain't no Mr. Cool, you know. Um, and then there's, there's the um, the lines about um, broken, beaten down, can't even get around without an old man cane. I fall and hit the ground, shivering in the cold, I'm bitter and alone. Well, that's from Harvard, isn't it? Yes. I think people yeah. didn't even recognise him, did they? No. I think he no. even turned up with a Weezer T-shirt on, didn't he? Yeah. Every so often. <laughs> and nobody put two and two together because he had the cane and he was like pretty yeah. dishevelled. So, yeah. And he must just be thinking, and it comes through in this, doesn't it? It must be like, oh, sod this. Yeah. I'm a rock star. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I think, um, you know, when you sort of, um, he's obviously sort of pining for the way things were before fame and fortune came knocking on his door. Um and, and this is kind of the flip side to what we were just talking about with Across the Sea. You know, when you take a, a work as, as a whole and in context, you know, there's obviously um, a lot of artistic license going to these lyrics whereby, you know, you can't sort of, um, you know, you can't read a work of fiction and however much truth is in it um, for the author, there's always... Um, just as much in it that isn't the author, mm. that is the author's imagination. Yeah. Um, and I kind of think we've got to cut, cut him some slack um, because I think not every line in every song is an accurate um, um, portrayal of his life and his thoughts and feelings. Do you, you think know? he thought it was a funky dude? No, actually, I pro- I probably not. No, I mean, you know, he might be doing that in an ironic I think it probably sense, is you know. shaking booty making sweet love all night yeah yeah which is kind it's, of it reminds me of Napoleon Dynamite for <laughs> some reason making sweet love yeah and be, you know being on a on a university campus as well um, you know where there's doubtless scores and scores of young people attending frat parties and mm. you know doing all those things that uh, um, playing beer pong or whatever it is that they, that mm. they do um, the youth. The youth, yeah. Right, okay, so, El Scorcho. Yeah, the obvious first single. <laughs> Do you know what? I, 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 I'm not sure why this was the first single. I think I said in the previous attempt at doing this, um, I, I waxed lyrical about how great this, uh, how great El Scorcho is and how it's the obvious choice for the single. And after we'd recorded it, I thought... What a load of crap. That's just yeah. not... You know, if you're going to pick a single off this album, it's got to be something like Get You or... Yeah. Uh, Upbeat, bit or, You know. Yeah. Something that's that's vaguely similar to the Blue Album to lull people into yeah. that false sense of security well, that the rest of the album... the time, don't they? Yeah. The rest of the album's going to be exactly the same, you know. Yeah, I would like to have been a fly on the wall where it was decided that there were a going to have this one because it's like it's not like it's got a, a super catchy I don't know you know some kind of earworm at the beginning yeah. although the, I suppose that acoustic guitar line is a bit yeah but um, it's not really radio material is it 
No, it's not. It's not the kind of song that you will um, put on and go, "Wow!" You know, mm. from the first beat of the first bar. You know, it's got some. Um, it, it, it's. I do like it as its as its charm, but it's got some of his heavy lyrics in again. You know, like that yeah. watching grunge leg drop new jack through a press table. I've no idea what that means, but no. it sounds really good. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also, we're back into questionable. Um, lyrical content again and it kind of centers around um, Japanese girls Mm -hmm. you know like across the sea is you know you are 18 year old girl from small city in Japan Um, which um, I'm assuming he was just sort of on that line he was just sort of repeating what was written on the letter um, and not just being needlessly uh, dropping uh, what's it called (laughs) Not, not, not just trying to ape how he thinks somebody in Japan would speak English, you know, in yeah. a quite offensive way. Um, but we've got that opening line, God damn you half Japanese girls, which is a very, very tricky line to talk about. <laughs> well, he's married to a Japanese woman, so it's not like he didn't mean it. Um, no, it's not. You know, he obviously does have some... A penchant. Sort of, a penchant for, for ladies... Um, from that neck of the woods. Um, but I kind of feel like um, if if you have that kind of preference, just enjoy it for yourself. Hmm? You know, you don't have to put it in a song. Well, he did. You know? He did in and the he end, did. didn't he? Yeah, he did yeah. in the end. And, you know, I think it's one of a few quite questionable lines throughout the album. Um, I like the redhead said you shred the cello and I'm jello, baby. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm trying to envisage a music class where Rivers Cuomo is shredding the cello and there's a beautiful redhead hmm? sat next to him going, wow. Comes up again, though, in this yeah. album. Yeah, yeah, it does, it does. Um, shred the cello. Shred the cello, yeah. And then there's that, that amazing line, which you can almost forgive Rivers all his other um, lyrical discretions or indiscretions. Uh, I asked you to go to the Green Day concert. You said you'd never heard of them. How cool is that? Hmm? Um, which is a great, um, a, just a, a, I can, th- th- this is one of those lines where you can actually imagine it actually happened. Yeah. You know, that there is a basis in truth in what he's singing about. The next line, I hope there isn't, uh, we, he goes on to sing, so I went to your room and read your diary. I bet he did. No, oh, you can't, no, no, no. I, I mean, you know, I, no, I don't believe that he could. I don't. No. I don't. He's too nice a guy. He's too nice, and and it, you know, it would. It, it, I don't think he'd put it in a song if he did. Mm. Surely, is that the least believable thing that he is? That he would in go the lyrics. That he would go and read someone else's diary after talking about licking and sniffing <laughs> letters and envelopes and stuff. <laughs> I'd Actually, almost be like, I'd rather he read my diary than did that, wouldn't you? Um, I, I can well believe that he sniffed and licked an envelope more than he snuck into somebody's room and read the diary. Mm. Uh, <laughs> um, musically also, like tempo-wise, it's very, very mid-tempo. Loose. And it's loose. And, and it's loose as well, yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Um, it, it, it kind of feels like it could do with a couple more BPMs. Um, you know, if it's going to be a single, you know, you want something that's going to um, inspire people to um, get up and shake booty. Mm. Uh, Make sweet love all uh, night. Yeah, yeah. 
And and I'm afraid, despite what I said in the previous attempt at recording this podcast, that, that this isn't really the song for that. I don't think. Mm. Um, again, it's 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 a song of of contradictions as well because you know he's kind of. Um, well, maybe not contradictions, but like you know, it, it goes into that line in the middle eight. How stupid is it? I can't talk about it. I got to sing about it and make a record of my heart. Um, you, you know, it, it kind of like in his deep down, like he knows that like a lot of what he's singing about is ridiculous. Mm. You know, um, and there's always that sort of clash of this is what my heart is feeling and this is what my head is telling me yeah. and it feels like that battle just goes on throughout the whole whole album i think with the next song though the i think he'll redeem himself redeem himself with questionable lyrics i think there'll be well let's hope so yeah what's next uh oh <laughs> <laughs> ironically safer ground <laughs> yeah pink triangle I'll be honest, like of all the songs that that you would think would be the most questionable lyrically, this isn't one of them, um, because it kind of it could be hugely offensive, but actually it's just quite an honest statement of um, I found this girl attractive and she's a lesbian and she's a lesbian, so <laughs> you know I've got no chance, um, and that's basically the 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 gist of the whole thing. Um, it's got that amazing couplet um, at the end of the second verse. Everyone's a little queer, can't she be a little straight? Yeah. I, I just think that that's like a real sort of God damn it moment. It's got I mean? that lovely little uh, knew that day would surely come r- vocal rundown as yeah. well, isn't it? Yeah. It's like we've talked about before when we, me and you have talked about this song. It's either out of tune, genius, or a bit of both. Yeah. And I think yeah. it is a bit of both, isn't it? The whole thing's tuned up a bit of a pitch. Is it? I right. think it's okay. like, it's a bit sharp. I don't know whether they, something was a bit amiss somewhere and they had to do some, you know, faffing around with stuff to get it to work. But yeah, it's definitely um, tuned slightly sharp to the rest of the stuff. Yeah. But yeah, it's a yeah. great song. Good chorus. Um, yeah. Dumb and lesbian are interesting words to make rhyme, but I think it just about it just, works. Just about pulls it off. Assonance is... Uh, Julie Walters said in uh, Educating Reader, getting the, means getting the rhyme wrong. All right, okay. So there you go. Didn't know that. Yeah. Um, one thing I would say, um, I noted that the, uh, the the drums are very Blue Album-esque. They're very straight, um, yeah. just, you know, with the kick and snare mm. on two and four. But it works really um, well, though, doesn't it? It does work really well. It does work really well. I think um, this is as close to a crowd sing-along chorus as... Any song gets on this yeah. this album. Um, speaking of the the out of tune thing, um, from you know, that you mentioned earlier, the guitar melodies in the verses. You know, when he sort of 
the guitar melody accompanies the vocal melody and he does a bit of slide oh, guitar yeah. and stuff. That's that's a bit jarring for me, is that? Is it? Yeah, it feels like it's a bit out of tune. I've never noticed that um, bit, so thanks. Yeah, all right, yeah well, you're welcome. <laughs> Trade-off, I've told you about the good life. <laughs> but yeah, I've not noticed that, but it's, um, yeah. And the, and the solo feels like a bit of a non-solo to me. Mm. It doesn't really sort of lift the song, does it? You know, and it's, it's, it's played quite a lot in the lower registers and it's not until they do like that dual harmony guitar yeah. descent into the last um, half-tempo chorus um, that it actually sort of begins to sort of feel like there's a guitar solo going on. Um but, this, yeah. but I love this. It's like these songs near the end here are all the ones that I think are the best ones on the record because, yeah. you know, like just it seems to kind of like lift as the, as the Turn album a corner. goes up. Yeah, just as you get to kind of the good life, I just think it, it, it shifts as an album for me. Yeah, I think, well, the mood changes, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, the, the, the first sort of half of the album is kind of quite... Um, Self-indulgent in its um, self-pity. Yeah. Well, These are a bit more pop, aren't they? Kind of... Yeah, yeah. A bit more pop and a bit more... Um, a bit more sort of uh, optimistic and uplifting. Um, which, which you know, as we said earlier, you know, um, the fact that this is um, the eighth track on the album and it's the first what you might call a sing-along chorus is, mm. is you know, s- tells its own story really, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, but yeah, what well, I, I mean, it is quite a, quite a sweet song. Mm. About a lesbian. About a lesbian who, you know, Rivers, I don't know, I don't know if it's even clear if he actually met her or not. Isn't there a story that, um, it was a girl on campus who was wearing a pink triangle. Oh yeah, and it was it was it was wrong in the end. Yeah, she, she wasn't actually. Yeah, yeah, she was just supporting. Yeah, that was it. Uh, yeah, that's it. Um, the rights or some kind yeah. of yeah gay and lesbian um, causes and and whatnot by wearing this pink triangle. Um, segway straight into segway straight into um, falling for you. The intro reminds me of No Surprises by Radiohead. Yeah, it's very much got that vibe, hasn't it? And a bit like... But this is pre-No Surprises, isn't it? It is, yeah. And like, a bit today, Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah, post that. Yeah, so it's, it's in between. But it's, um, yeah. yeah, it's. A, I love this song. Yeah. It's got some funny bits in it, like the, the bit about Little Old Three Chord Me. <laughs> it's got every single... Yeah. Not every single chord, but it's got A's to G's, including flats and sharps, all the way up and down. Yeah. So it's it's anything but a little three chord song. Yeah. Loads of relative minor and major chord substitutions for all you theory nerds. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's just a great song. Yeah, and he's again um, got a cello in, in the, the basement. Song. Is it in the basement it's on in, this? It's in the basement. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Does it mention a redhead, or is, does it say the redhead in this? Um, do you know what I think? I'm just I'm just scanning through the lyrics now, and um, is it the oh sweet goddamn? <laughs> is that in it? Oh, holy sweet goddamn! God damn, you left your cello in the basement. Yeah, maybe it's not the redhead. Yeah, but you know, um, it says the the line I can't believe how bad I suck. It's true. Just before, what could you possibly see in little three, little old three chord me? Mm. Um, each of the verses starts with the word holy. 
We've got Holy Cow, Holy Moly, and Holy Sweet Goddamn. Very good. Yeah, yeah. Um, Holy Moly, I would have, I would have sang something else rather than Holy Moly. No, but it goes great with the Holy Moly, baby, wouldn't you know it? It all well, rolls, yeah. rolls along. The alliteration is. Uh, yeah. That's the word I meant. Yeah, it, 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 and it's got it's the good. "I'm ready, let's do it, baby," which is my favourite bit. Yeah, yeah, that 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 is a. <laughs> I mean, you can hear the sort of almost passion in his voice, can't you? Like you know, I'm not sure if it's passion. It's like, <laughs> well, it's it's like, isn't it? Desperation. It's, it's, um, Would you say that to somebody though? <laughs> I'm ready, let's do it, baby. In, in your Yorkshire accent. Uh, no, I don't think I would. So yeah, again, um, the straight drums, um, very reminiscent of the uh, of the the blue album, the solo section. Um, I, I just love that section where the it feels like there's two or three different guitar tracks just sort of intertwining oh, yeah. with each other um, all the way through. It's, and and the chord sequence that runs underneath the instrumental sections has got like you know like you said earlier, it's got a, it feels like a very classical kind of chord structure. You know like. Um, Pachelbel's Canon or or something like that. You know, that's kind of what it feels like in terms of, you know, like when the farm did all together now and it was mm. just that that descending sequence, which is, yeah. you know, Pachelbel's Canon. It's got that sort of feel to it to, to me. And um, the if you listen under the Holy Sweet Goddamn verse, yeah. the, like the bass is doing some strange thing, which is like a cello line almost. It's really odd. Yeah, well, that would, you know, musically reference the lyric, wouldn't it? You know, with the, mm. the, the cello in the basement. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, um, it kind of, it felt like to me like Across the Sea was possibly contended for the most sophisticated musical arrangement on the album. But Until I think, you got to that one. But I think Falling For You was pipped it And then at, even in the last the minute, post. it goes off in another direction even more, doesn't it? Yeah. It changes key a bit more and goes a bit more haywire. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's really complicated, that one. Yeah, it is. Which leads us um, nicely on to um, the only song that I think could possibly finish the album. You know, I, I can't imagine any other song. Um, you know, I can't... What, I don't know where else it would fit yeah, in. Exactly, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I can't, I can't see where Butterfly would, would sit nicely. Um, but also, you know, lyrically, it kind of... This is, this is the kicker for me. This is the point at which you forgive Rivers Cuomo all his previous lyrical misjudgments mm. um, by today's standards. Um, because this is actually like like a full admission of guilt yeah. and, you know, um, and it's an apology. You know, he sings I'm sorry three times at the end, you know. Um, and there's a lot of regret and, and uh, you know, it's almost like a lament, isn't it, really? Yeah. Um, last thing they recorded, wasn't it? Or one of the last things yes, they did. Like, yeah, 6am on the final night of the final session. It's at, like a something in the way kind of lead off to an album, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, and, and there's a, a rumination on how, you know, as human beings we are capable of taking... Um, beautiful things and beautiful relationships and all the things that are good in our lives and completely fucking them up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it does that perfectly, you know. And the, the, you know, the metaphor of, of the butterfly in the jar, you know, which is obviously linked to Madame Butterfly, from which he drew a lot of inspiration for the for the album. Um, 
you know that that metaphor that metaphor is is um, is quite quite touching, and it's and it's delivered in 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 a real sort of tender, intimate kind of way, and it's like. Um, it's like he's really sort of laying everything out there, you yeah. know. He's, he's hidden behind the band for nine songs, and then, like on this last song, it's just him and a guitar, and and I think it's um, Carl Cock playing, yeah, percussion in the yeah in the in the background. Have you always thought this way about this album? You know, like lyric wise, and the and how it when you get to Butterfly and just the the themes of it all. No, because I think butterfly to me. I, I've just taken it all literally. <laughs> Ever read uh, any any deeper than what's on the page? Um, I think now, obviously, kind of going into it in a bit more detail, I understand what it all is. But yeah, yeah, it's. I mean, when when I first heard the album, and I first heard butterfly, I thought. Oh, that's nice. Why is he singing about catching a butterfly? Yeah, and then yeah. he kills it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and and like to be honest, up until we started sort of doing this podcast, <laughs> I'd not really engaged with it on that level at all. No, but but suddenly when you do sort of start getting into the the you know the the weeds and and getting into deep water <laughs> with these things, um, you know it, things do start to sort of pop out at you and you start mm. making these connections and you start going, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, one of the the greatest things I've seen on YouTube on of any concert was um, uh, Weezer performing, I think it's at um, a venue in Philadelphia called the Electric Something... I can't remember. Anyway. It's a good name um, for a venue. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, it's like, honestly, it's like the set list that... Uh, the dream one. Yeah, yeah. That, that if I could see Weezer play... You come across gigs sometimes like that, don't you, on YouTube, and you're like, this exact yeah. moment in time is when I would like to have seen them. Yeah, yeah. And, and they're playing... It's on the Pinkerton tour, and they're playing just pretty much everything from the Blue Album and Pinkerton in one set. Um and the first encore in this club where, you know, it's just full of, I imagine, jocks. Pissed jocks. Pissed jocks, shouting shit out and, and just, you know, mm. creating havoc. Um, the first encore is, is Rivers on his own playing this song in front of, like, mm. a big audience. And I just think that just takes balls of steel mm. to... To, to or it's hugely self-indulgent. <laughs> or it's or it's hugely self-indulgent. Or it's massively misjudged. He's yeah. he, you know he's, maybe he's massively misjudged how much people would connect mm. with this particular song. Imagine uh, putting the set list together and like, all right, <laughs> yeah, lads, we're yeah. all going to go off. Yeah. And then you know we'll come back home. When I say we, I mean me. Yeah. And I'll do a song on me. And I'm going to lace bare my soul in front of all these drunk people. Yeah. Um, and they're going to be quiet and yeah. reverential throughout, which yeah. of course they're not. But um, you know, did they do another song after that? Though? Yeah, yeah, they oh, did. I think I think they like closed the night with Buddy Holly or something right, okay. like that. I wonder um, how they feel when they always revert back to that last. What to or, Buddy Holly? Oh, like when any band does it, you know, like. You must almost feel like you've all been waiting yeah. for this. Everything else is... I went to see Beck last year 
and he played 40 odd songs guess what the last song was um loser yep yeah well you kind of i think i think bands go through like a resistance to that like Nirvana did with Smells Like Teen Spirit. And had Nirvana carried on, they might have pushed through that to the next phase of this song gave me a life that I wouldn't have had otherwise. <laughs> yeah. So I'm glad to play it as many times as the audience want me to. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of bands reach that point where they look back and they think, oh, actually, you know what, you know what, um, maybe the audience deserve to hear this mm-hmm. song. When the ticket sales start dipping off. Yeah. As their yeah. album sales start nosediving and the yeah. ticket sales start dipping off, they're like, yeah. we should bring that song back into set, <laughs> I think. <laughs> I really miss it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, A masterpiece, abso- all in all. An absolute masterpiece. It's but, not, it's not but, without its faults, but it is the best Weezer album, full stop, ever of all time. In in my in my humble opinion, um, have you? What was the last Weezer album that you bought? Oh, the covers one. I liked the covers one. Yeah, the, the Teal co- album. Well, isn't that speaks volumes, doesn't it? That, you know, <laughs> it does it's really, a yeah. bunch of other people. I liked songs. it when they weren't playing their own material on <laughs> yeah, that album. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the last album that I paid money for, a hard copy of, was Maladroit. Yeah, I think is that how you say it? Have I been saying it wrong all these I years? Don't know. Anyway, yeah, that one. That's yeah. the one I got. Um, and that that was... I think that was a fan-curated album, wasn't it? I remember you saying. Um, I liked the Green Album, though. Nobody likes the Green Album when you look at people or read things that people well, said about it online, but I, I like it. Again, you know, I think um, the response to this album was so negative in terms of critical response. And then, it, and, you know, and then it didn't sell. Mm. Um and you know, I I think um, the Green Album, you know, Return to Working with Rick Okasek was an attempt to um, revisit the Blue Album, mm. um, but updated for the twenty yeah. first century. I remember listening um, to it and thinking, I bet people love this. You know, like just yeah. be like, thank God for that. We're back to we're back to Weezer again. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but. In in making that shift, like we we mentioned earlier, um, you know, I think he the lesson the takeaway from Pinkerton that I think Rivers Cuomo took in those immediate in those years immediately afterwards was that um, if he tried to write anything um, that was sort of sincere and from the heart, however um, controversial or um, offensive or mm. well whatever that might be. Um, he he would just reap those same um, results, um, and I think the Green Album was an attempt to just be as inoffensive yeah. as possible and write something that was um, almost quite benign. Between it, some of it. Yeah, but I, yeah. I like it though. Yeah, I think it's great. Just a couple of blokes pouring over nine and notes. You've reached the end of side one. Well done. Take the rest of the programme. Please fast forward and turn over the cassette. Thank you for listening to the Rock Geeks podcast. If you have any comments, corrections, and/or constructive criticism, you can contact us at therockgeeks at gmail.com. If you have anything unnecessarily rude to say, please put it in your own trash folder and delete it to save us the bother. 
While we do read every email we receive, we cannot unfortunately guarantee a reply. The Rock Geeks is researched, written and presented by Phil Greenwood and Julian Gallagher. Jingles composed and recorded by Phil Greenwood and Julian Gallagher. Editing by Phil Greenwood. If you have enjoyed the Rock Geeks podcast, please consider joining us at Patreon, where in exchange for your generosity you will receive ad-free episodes, bonus content and early access. Or alternatively, it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave us a five-star review and tell your friends about us.